claiming imposter syndrome, I mean this just generally, is it also kind of a polite way to acknowledge one's own success? <laughs> I mean, I think I think I read an article to that effect where it was saying like, is it kind of a social maneuver of being like this is yeah a way of humble bragging if you will of like oh like i couldn't possibly have done all this little me This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. Imposter syndrome has been going through a bit of an identity crisis lately. After all, who doesn't struggle with self-doubt or feeling like a phony? And what good is working on your own confidence if you're up against things like, you know, systemic gender bias, tokenism, classism, etc.? One of the most popular Harvard Business Review articles ever that has been translated into multiple languages is the 2021 piece by Rashika Tolshin and Jody Ann Burry headlined, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. There was the New Yorker article published earlier this year by Leslie Jameson about how imposter syndrome seems so ubiquitous these days that, quote, Critics and even the idea's originators question its value. All this imposter fatigue isn't lost on comedian Aparna Nanchurla. Her new book is Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. That in itself brought up self-doubt and like a crisis of confidence of like, why am I even writing a book about this now? It might not even be a real thing. Like that both uh, horrified me and fed into the like, well, I guess that that's on brand that this thing that is fake uh, makes me feel fake is may in fact all be fake. Maybe you've seen Aparna's specials on Netflix or Comedy Central. Perhaps you've heard her jokes on Late Night with Seth Meyers or on episode number two of this very podcast. I really thought if I shaved my legs, I would bleed out in the shower. Like, I just didn't see how it was possible I would get it right. So... I just, like, waited. Just a few weeks ago, I myself yelled aloud, startling my dog when Aparna showed up as an energy vampire on What We Do in the Shadows. I am always thrilled to see Aparna. Hi, I'm Aparna Nancherla. I'm a comedian and first-time author, and I like to try to write about things that are inside my head and get them out into the world and hopefully connecting with other people. And why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? I think I live so much inside my head that uh, I find being creative and making things is a way to kind of get get outside of my own brain and uh yeah, out into out into the world and yeah, hopefully in a way where I can learn more about other people and kind of meet them meet them in the middle between my head and and theirs. This episode, Aparna and I are not going to settle all of the ongoing debates about imposter syndrome, spoiler. 
And I promise it is not my own imposter syndrome talking when I tell you she and I are simply not qualified for that. But I was really eager to talk to Aparna about it because I think that her own personal experiences and feelings surrounding imposter syndrome point to the nuances of it and and why it is kind of up for debate in certain ways. And I was just so eager to find out how she relates to it as someone who both visibly stands out in the sea of white dude comics and also someone who kind of made her name, became a known quantity by sharing openly about her mental health and lifelong feelings of not belonging. I have a lot of anxiety. Um, it is it's a pretty solid part of my life. Like, and and how many any stress heads in the house tonight? Yeah, that was a good amount. So usually people are just like, we're scared. But I I actually find it weirder to not have anxiety than to have it because I feel like if you're not scared, you're not paying attention. You know. So I was a pretty shy, introverted kid, and my parents were both immigrants from India and doctors, and I think they, you know, very much wanted my sibling and I to be able to fit in and to hack it in the world, and so my mom was kind of always looking for ways to push me out of my shell. She thought I was kind of too too timid uh, a kid, and one of these things was public speaking classes. She put uh, my, my sibling and I, in when we were like maybe 11 and 13, I think she was like, this is a useful soft skill that will make you so <laughs> popular with your peers. Um, no, but yeah, so we took these speech classes and then I remember entering a speech contest that was, yeah, at the local Hindu temple with like the rest of the Indian community. And I, Remember the prompt was something like, what is a crucial issue you find facing the Indian American community today? And I remember everyone else kind of went with the topic that was more serious, whether that was like bigotry or, you know, assimilation or something along those lines. And I decided to just go in a sillier route where I uh, just did a takedown of Bollywood movies, which were kind of these, you know, movies that my parents would force us to watch at home. And uh, I didn't speak Hindi, so I would have to constantly keep asking them what was happening, what was going on. So I kind of watched them with some resentment. So I think I I harnessed that resentment to to then write my own like take up, take down of them and and make make fun of them and kind of a gentle roast, if you will. (laughs) And I, I think the audience was, yeah, maybe just so delighted to have a lighter topic and and hear something kind of approached in a more funny, lighter manner. So it went over really well. And I think that was the first time I realized that, oh, like one way to really connect to people in a way that makes them take their guard down and really open up is is humor and like being funny and maybe not taking something as seriously. And yeah, I think that was really the first moment I realized like how much of an impact it could have just because I ended up winning that contest. And I think a lot of it was because of my choice of material and topic. And I'm sure delivery. And delivery, yes, yes. (laughs) My impeccable delivery, yes. Do you remember at all, like, how I'm going to imagine that part of it going over well is that you got laughs? Yes. And do you remember 
kind of how that felt when when the audience was like definitely on your side and laughing at like your send up. Yeah, it felt it almost felt like a sense of safety. I think I was so worried as a kid of sticking out in an unfavorable way. And I yeah, it felt like when you're making people laugh, there's almost like you feel it feels like they can't um like their guards are down so you don't feel like they can somehow maybe like hit you in a direction you didn't see coming like it yeah for me it almost feels like it felt like a way of controlling like other people's perceptions in a way that I was uh unused to feeling and I think in that sense I found um maybe security in it that I was having trouble finding in other parts of my life your book, Unreliable Narrator, is now out in the world. So, Aparna, how does it feel? It feels honestly surreal. It's been a long process in writing it. I think four years in total, maybe a little over four years. So I think I I am not uh I am not at all like exaggerating and saying that I never thought this day would come. <laughs> <laughs> And in a good way. It's a good way. But uh, certainly I, in writing a book about self-doubt, I think I never, uh, part of me was like, would it be more, would I be having more integrity if I didn't finish it at all? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you have plenty of practice, obviously, talking about self-doubt and mental health, things like this, in stand-up on mm -hmm. stage. How does that compare to writing it? Yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to write a book just because it feels like a more long form and I guess less resolved way of being able to explore a topic. I think with stand-up, you know, you still need that. You only have so much real estate to make your point and you need it to be punchy and you need it to be polished and, you know, people need to know where where you're starting and where you're ending up. And I thought a book would be a way to get more into those like nooks and crannies and like crevices of some of these topics, which aren't don't always have clean resolutions, especially with things like self-doubt and anxiety and depression and and so that's kind of what interested me in writing a book in the first place. And yeah, I think it the it proved I proved correct in that it is it was a pretty messy process. And mm -hmm. and I don't know if I always ended up where I thought I would, but I certainly was like readers are getting a snapshot of what the experience was like for me and kind of trying to pin these things down and my evolution with some of these topics. Can you give any examples of anything that did take you in a direction that you weren't expecting? Yeah, I mean, I guess even in writing, and uh, I think my essay about anxiety is in a few different pieces, but one of them is about just leading up to doing a stand-up performance and kind of wh where my head is at going into it as I'm nearing getting to the venue and then right before I get on stage. And that was interesting in that I, when I was writing the book, I was actually taking a break from performing. So in writing about it, it was maybe something I was recalling rather than something I was acutely experiencing while I was writing it. And it it does capture a, like a moment in my life where I was really having trouble with getting on stage. And I think now looking back at it, I'm not quite in the same place I was when I wrote it. So it is 
uh, to me, it is just indicative of how much we change as people, even on a on a smaller scale of time, let alone over the course of our lives. And ladies, you know what activity pairs perfectly with listening to your favorite podcasts? Putting together a brand new puzzle. Indulge in the timeless pleasure of assembling Ravensburger's Extraordinary Jigsaw Puzzles. Ravensburger's premium quality puzzles are crafted with meticulous attention to detail, bringing you an unparalleled puzzle-solving experience. With a rich heritage dating back to 1883, Ravensburger puzzles have become an integral part of families' lives across generations. Share the joy of puzzling with family and friends, knowing that your cherished puzzles will stand the test of time. Enjoy a mindful moment and immerse yourself in a world of captivating colors, stunning imagery, and intricate designs that will delight people of all ages. Regardless of your preference or skill level, you'll find a jigsaw puzzle that suits you perfectly. Me personally, I am torn between a 1,000-piece assortment of dogs puzzle and a classier industrial design Eames puzzle. Thanks to the wide range of imagery, themes, and piece counts available, you can start small and work your way up to over 40,000 pieces. Are you up for the challenge? Shop Ravensburger on Amazon today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before I get back to my conversation with Aparna, we need to find out how imposter syndrome became a thing to begin with. It all started in 1978. That's when psychologists Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes published the study, The Imposter Phenomenon in High-Achieving Women, Dynamics and Therapeutic Intervention. This study was based on five years' worth of interviews with 150 accomplished women in academia and various professions who could not internalize their own success or proven capabilities. The phenomenon's symptoms, Clance and Imes identified, are generalized anxiety, lack of self-confidence, depression, and, quoting the study, Frustration related to inability to meet self-imposed standards of achievement. And y'all, let me tell you, I check all of those boxes. What surprised me, though, is how the concept took off almost immediately in psychology circles. In 1985, Clance turned it into a whole book called The Imposter Phenomenon. And notice she calls it a phenomenon, not a syndrome. And that's intentional. In 1995, Clance explained that it's been very important for us not to have this be another defect in women or a pathologizing of women. But cut to 20 years later, and that's kind of what happened. Now, I'm not going to put all the blame on Sheryl Sandberg, but 
In 2013, her book, Lean In, undoubtedly helped popularize the language of imposter syndrome and its inhibiting effects on women in the workplace. Sandberg writes on page 29 of Lean In, For women, feeling like a fraud is a symptom of a greater problem. We consistently underestimate ourselves. And even though... Since 1978, when the imposter phenomenon was originally coined, subsequent studies found that it doesn't really gender discriminate. In the mid-aughts, pop psychology and girl boss feminism really latched onto this idea that the only thing standing between women and career success, as defined and gatekept by white men, is our own imposter syndrome. But the more traction women's imposter syndrome gained, the more so what it attracted, particularly from women of color living at the intersection of gender socialization and everyday racism. Their lived experiences had already taught them that individualistic solutions like, you know, overcoming imposter syndrome, closing the confidence gap, that was no cure for institutionalized inequalities. So with all of that context, let's get back to Aparna. You write about how you were, quote, doubly praised by men in comedy who said it was cool that I didn't do hacky jokes about being a woman or being South Asian. And I should also mention, too, like this is like earlier in your career. How did you take that feedback at the time? I think at the time it fed into that sense of wanting to fit in where I was like, oh, good. I like I navigated this thing, this like test correctly or something where I I did the like good way of of showing up or I, you know, followed the unspoken rule that that no one had explicitly said. But yeah, I think later I started questioning, like, at what cost did I kind of accept that to be the only option or yeah, what did I sacrifice by making that decision? Um, And why was I so eager to like kind of, yeah, get this approval? Were there particular experiences that facilitated that questioning? I think just exposure and experience. Like when I started, you know, I started comedy in D.C. and I was only one of a few women, one of a few women of color uh, performing regularly that I... uh, knew of. And so I think I just kind of did what I had to to fit in in that environment. And then when I moved to Los Angeles and later New York, I was just seeing so many different types of comedians, um, whether they be women or people of color or queer people. And I think that just kind of opened up the possibilities of like, what am I allowed to talk about? How am I allowed to show up? Like what um, even like the audiences for for that felt more expansive than I had realized before. And how do you think that as your career is really flourishing, you're getting more and more like into show business? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that then also collide with realities around tokenism, especially in entertainment? Yeah, I think that's still a very real thing. I think. Uh, you know, I think we've come a long way. And certainly I started comedy like pre-YouTube and stuff. So I think there wasn't quite the same 
uh, accessibility of being a performer or like creating comedy content as there is now and knowing how many audiences like kind of crave content from people outside the status quo. But I think for me, yeah, even starting in trying to make a dent in Hollywood early on, I, I had a few people like I think Mindy Kaling was kind of a someone who had paved the way before me. But I still felt like there were only so many spots available. And and so you kind of like have to figure out like, what is my, how do I fit into this system? And for me, I think what helped me was that I I do have a kind of, you know, offbeat perspective and, and not necessarily, uh, I don't necessarily fit into the mainstream in, in a like intuitive way. So I, by kind of sticking to just like what I wanted to do, I think I managed to carve my own path um, just by happenstance of like following my gut instinct of of like what I like to do and what appealed to me. But I think it kind of helped that I didn't fit into like some preconceived notion of like something that had existed before. So where does imposter syndrome fit into all of this? Because I feel like it is, themes are resonating. Yes, yes. Certainly (laughs) a lot of uh, self-doubt threaded throughout. But for me, the imposter syndrome, I, I think it got worse, like the more of a place I established for myself. Like I think the more opportunities I got, I felt more maybe pressure to be more things to more people. And I think that's what ended up making it harder to ignore where it is like, oh, like now people expect certain things from you or you've you've gotten these opportunities and you have to justify why you've gotten them and why you should continue to get them. And I think that proved really hard for me to wrestle with when when I was still had this when I still had this voice that was kind of like, well, do you even really deserve to be here to begin with? What kinds of expectations, other people's expectations, felt sort of like threatening, like they could somehow reveal you as as a fraud? Yeah, I mean, even maybe talking, going back to the tokenism thing where it's sort of like you're like, am I getting these opportunities because I stick out as like a woman or a person of color? Like, are my abilities like the same as other people's? Like, am I sort of a face value? Uh person like I'm here just because of what I look like like I think those sorts of things can sometimes catalyze into self-doubt but then I also think just my own uh lifelong struggle to kind of fit in and want to uh attract attention but in a good way and not in a bad way always made me be like am I am I kind of showing up in the correct way to everyone else which I think is also yeah part of that same assimilationist mentality is that also part of what makes a stand-up space, which of course is famous for being a space to fail. Yeah. But is on the flip side of that, is it also a safety net that like you can at least have the assurance of a laughing crowd that, okay, yes, this is a visible sign that I am accepted and liked at least in this moment. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, again, it, it, it was the same sense of security I got from that first like speech that went well. But I think the flip side of it, especially early on, was when it didn't go well, which is, you know, pretty frequent when you're a newer comedian. Um, Like I would really internalize it and kind of be like, this is proof I don't belong in this space. And like they're seeing the real me versus, you know, when it does go well. So I think learning to not internalize like a bad night versus a good night 
uh, to some degree of like indicting me as a person was something that definitely took time and that I had to work through even, you know, later on when I had gotten some success under my belt. To me, it raises the question of considering the massive room for failure in comedy and your description of kind of internalizing rough nights. Why did you keep doing it then? Yeah, I mean, I I, I have wrestled with this question many times <laughs> myself because I do feel like I have sometimes a love-hate relationship with performing. But I I really think for me, it is those moments where you really feel like you're connecting with people and like me saying something that's in my head and and seeing other people get it. Like that feeling feels very rare and kind of like magical. And I think it's kind of, yeah, chasing that feeling of connection that can be very rare in day-to-day life or that I only, you know, otherwise find with like close friends or loved ones. Yeah. is kind of like trying to find that with, with other people that you might not know quite as well. That feels there's something, yeah, that feels just like very rare and special about that. During the busy fall, it can be hard to carve out, as you might a Halloween pumpkin, the time you need to cook. That's why I am thrilled to be able to open my fridge and choose a meal from Factor. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit that can help you fuel up fast with flavorful and nutritious ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time, eat well, and hey, no cleanup. Factor offers menus to fit a variety of dietary lifestyles, from keto to calorie smart, vegan and veggie to protein plus. And if you're looking to mix it up, They have options like adding a protein to select veggie and vegan meals each week. Treat yourself to more than 34 weekly restaurant-quality options like bruschetta shrimp risotto, green goddess chicken, and grilled steakhouse filet mignon ready in just two minutes? Yes, please. With Factor, you can also rest assured you're making a sustainable choice. They offset 100% of their delivery emissions and feature sustainably sourced seafood in all of their meals. Head to factormeals.com slash unladylike50 and use code unladylike50 to get 50% off. Bon appetit! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The dictionary definition of imposter syndrome includes fear of being exposed as a fraud despite evidence of one's ongoing success. Like it is, it seems predicated on Mm. some having achieved some success. I don't know. For for me, it feels very real in that sometimes I am like, who am I to to have these opportunities or 
I don't know if it's just like the self-doubt almost acts as a foil to to keep you wanting to to create or like as a driver to be like, I have to keep going because now I'm like too far in over my head and people are really going to be mad if they find out I don't know what I'm doing. Like there's something about it that almost feels like it drives you forward as even though it, that sounds counterintuitive. It kind of doesn't, though, because like the inverse of imposter syndrome, what would that be? Just like unbridled, like <laughs> cis white male ego. You right, know right, what right. I mean? Yeah, like, I guess like entitlement or like just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, but I, yeah, and I, I've met like certainly even women who don't struggle with it at all. And I just, it, to me, it feels so un, like I cannot not even fathom what it would be like to in your head just feel like you deserve things because <laughs> I think I come <laughs> I come so much the opposite extreme but but at the same time saying that I should also qualify that I think as a perfectionist there is this idea in my head that I could if I really took the time and really like made the space for myself make something really, really good or really great. And then I'm always just like sabotaging myself so that that will never happen. In your experience too, do you distinguish at all between just run-of-the-mill self-doubt and what is considered imposter syndrome? Yeah, I mean, I think self-doubt in itself is just, in and of itself is just you... Uh, maybe questioning your own sense of um, not just capability, but also just, you know, how you show up in many ways, whether that's like as a partner in a relationship or professionally or, you know, like your looks, like it can sort of be in any arena. And then I think imposter syndrome to me feels like it shows up most specifically in terms of, uh, I guess, like, achievement and career and and that sort of realm but I do I mean saying that I also feel like I felt like an imposter in in other areas of my life like in relationships I felt like you know like what are you doing with me you, you could do so much better like that sort of thing so I think it can show up in any arena but I think self-doubt can be a more generalized version of just like insecurity what did you make of like recent debates around imposter syndrome, especially as someone who, you know, for a while kind of identifies with that? Yeah, I, I, I you know, I was a psychology major in college and I think just hum the human mind and human behavior has always fascinated me. And it, it, I, even in writing this book, it sort of made me wrestle with like whether or not you, we label things as a society or like what, our experience of something internally versus how it's externally being framed. Like it's never fully going to line up. Like you can never fully be in someone's head and know that what you're describing is exactly what they're going through. So in that same sense, like whether or not imposter syndrome is real, uh, like the feelings that it describes are things that people feel. So I think those things you can't really debate like you can't tell someone they don't feel like they don't fit in if they feel like they don't fit in <laughs> what did imposter syndrome mean to you when you got your first big break writing on totally biased yeah i i think it was um 
my first comedy writing job and the first thing that allowed me to do comedy full time as my only job. And so I think I, in a way, was the, you know, first sign that, oh, you could actually have a career in this field. And like, this is the kind of the end this was the end point in a lot of your dreams and fantasies about like what being a comedian could be like, it would be working full-time in comedy. And I think going into that and being like, well, actually nothing else about me has changed. Like I was still temping a week ago. I'm still the exact same person. I think maybe that led to a little bit of a confidence uh, meltdown about like, well, I actually am the exact same person who was like not you know, had too many browser tabs open at my office job a week ago. Like, I don't think I'm actually supposed to be here. Like, this has been, this is a horrible mistake. And I think that sort of feeling of like, I'm the same person I was before this dream was achieved. And, and I know all the like bad parts about me or the flaws or the parts that don't measure up. Like, I think my brain sometimes will give more airtime to that part rather than the like, oh, but you got this job for a reason and you like, you know, had a writing sample that they liked and your peers vouched for you. Like it was easier to kind of uh, listen to the negative voices than the ones that were saying otherwise. And what about these days? Has that changed? I think these days it it still goes back and forth, but I have found as I've gotten older, just an overall uh, bend towards self-acceptance and kind of, I think there's also maybe in your twenties and thirties, more of this idea of like, if you just like get a little further, you'll get to this like point that you've been working for toward for so long. And yeah, I turned 40 last year. And I think I, I, it, it feels like the first time I, to me in my life that the end is sort of conceivably in sight and you're like, oh, I'm not going to turn into some sort of magically different person between now and like the rest of my life, whatever it ends up being. And, and yeah, there's maybe some people like that, there's depressing elements to that, but then I don't know, there's also a lot of freedom in being like, this is how I show up now is kind of who I am as a person. And that's cool. Like if this is it, that's like, I can accept that. How has talking about your own mental health and depression and anxiety and getting known mm -hmm. partly through that, how has that affected you and your mental health? Yeah, I think for me, it's been very much a, uh, a similar relationship with performing where it can be a little love hate where it i really feel humbled that people resonate with when i talk about anxiety and depression and then at the same time i'm like well, why can't actually having these things like be resolved by being able to like make a a nice joke about it you know or like a a polished presentation of it like that seems to you know, connect with people and make people laugh. But then the actual experience of it can be so much darker and less resolved. And I think sometimes I wish the two would match up neater of like, you know, telling a joke about anxiety versus having anxiety on the way to the show. Like they're two completely different things. It's not always lined up as neatly as I would like. 
Do you have any advice for any listeners who also very much identify with the self-doubt and imposterism? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, getting out of your own head is really important. I think even, you know, talking to other people is obviously the best of of really connecting on on some of these topics that can be so shameful and and dark sometimes but yeah even just sometimes saying things out loud or writing them down i find can take some of the power out of the really negative voices we have i think in the years before i wrote this book i spent a lot of time you know using twitter and using social media as a platform and i've really kind of stepped away from it in the past few years and in some ways that that can make you feel really out of the loop and and maybe like you're not engaging with the world the way the rest of the world is but i don't know i've also found that it's created like a lot of space for me that i didn't have before and not to say that you don't have to be on it at all but i think it's okay to sometimes set those boundaries in our lives that don't always match up with what it feels like the rest of the world wants from you. You mean that social media can <laughs> like kind of suck out our souls? <laughs> I would never go that far, Kristen. <laughs> I would never speak that badly of our one true God, social media. <laughs> Now, ladies, I want to know what y'all think about imposter phenomenon slash syndrome. I am sure y'all have many stories to share. Hello at unladylike.co is where you can send your emails or voice memos. Love a voice memo. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. And be sure to check out Aparna Nancherla's new book, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. You should also follow her on all of the places. She is at Aparnapkin on Instagram and Twitter. She's also going to be out and about a lot. So head to aparnacomedy.com to find all of her tour dates. And the very first stand-up joke you heard in this episode is from Aparna's 2016 album, Just Putting It Out There. You know what you can also do? You can rewind 205 episodes to episode two of Unladylike, How to Gal Pal. Unladies, I still remember that interview with Aparna and Joe Firestone, and I basically just laughed the whole time. You can also follow Unladylike at Unladylike Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you want to support an independent feminist podcast, you need to join the Unladies Room. Head over to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. That is the bonus feed. And last week, I talked about the one-year anniversary of Masa Gina Amini's death in Iran and what has happened in the year of protests over there. Patreon.com slash Unladylike Media. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, hosted, written, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Mixing and mastering is by Multitude Productions. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. What is the most unladylike thing mm. about you? Oh my gosh, what is the most unladylike thing? I think I say this in the book, but um, 
Yeah, I discovered at some point that I pick my nose in my sleep and that feels like it's probably not in the guide to etiquette. But very impressive. But I know, I'm multitasking to the end. 